Hi, everyone. This is Drew Dudley, host of the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again for this week's episode. It's a fascinating conversation with Mike Cameron, entrepreneur, father, and endurance athlete. But I wanted to let everyone know before we get into the podcast that part of our discussion involves Mike talking about a significant loss in his life. And it was a loss that happened, unfortunately, very violently. And before we went too far, I wanted to warn everyone ahead of time that if you've lost someone close to you, if you or someone you love has been the victim of a violent crime, that is a topic that we're going to be talking about during this podcast. So I wanted to make sure that I let everyone know that. It actually is a discussion that really dives into some positive things on hope and forgiveness and strength, but I didn't want that to get sprung on anybody a little later on in the podcast. So I really hope that you enjoy this week's episode. Thanks for joining us. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. It is the day one leadership podcast. I am Drew Dudley. I am here today with the president and CEO of Axiom Mortgage. He's a tremendously successful entrepreneur, a multi-time triathlete, an extraordinarily generous community leader. And up until I met him, I'd probably have called him a badass. But since I've gotten to know him, I will no longer do that. And you're going to find out why throughout the course of this podcast. I am here with Mike Cameron. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the Day One Leadership Podcast. Hey, Drew, it's my absolute pleasure. I am really looking forward to this. We've always had some great conversations, so it'll be fun doing it this way. And I, and I hope as we were talking, we were talking at dinner beforehand that we don't freak out and uh, not have intelligent conversations now because there's microphones in front of us because it always has flowed so easily and now I'm worried that now that there's these these devices in front of us we'll just become blithering idiots. Yeah, I'm thinking that might be a possibility. Probably shouldn't have had those seven shots of tequila over dinner yeah, either. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And I want to point out to uh, to my sponsor <laughs> that Mike had all of the tequila. So <laughs> so I guess I am the enabler in this particular case. So we're going to do I know you pretty well and and I'm honored by that. I'm happy to call you a friend. And I've noticed that when I did my podcast with Preet Banerjee, that uh, I, I take the opportunity to, when I do podcasts with my friends, to maybe try things a little bit differently. So let's dive into the podcast a little bit differently than I have with some of the other guests. And just start with this. If you could go back to day one, knowing what you know now, and build yourself into the leader and the person that you want to be, what three values would you aim to make the foundational pillars of your decision making every day? Well, these are these are the ones I continue to to strive for, and uh, I appreciate that you've given me some time to to think about this a little bit. Uh, but I think it have to be integrity would be number one, and and uh, we can talk about that because I know that's probably uh, seventeen million other people's uh, cliche value. Um, compassion and uh, empathy, I think, would be would be the other one. So integrity, compassion, and empathy. Yes. Okay. Let's let's kick off with with integrity, my good man. Because what if I said to you, I don't think integrity is a value. Defend it for me. Defend integrity as a value? Yeah. Well, when I, when I think about, so let's talk about the definition or what I mean when I talk about integrity. And I think, when I think integrity, I think uh, wholeness. So if you think the word integrity from a structural integrity standpoint, 
Um, I believe that integrity means being whole, being true to who you are. Uh, one of my favorite words in the English language is the word congruent. Uh, we've talked about that before as well. And I think that's what integrity means is to be, you know, to walk the walk uh, and talk the talk. What's well, interesting is because I had to, when I was writing my book, I guess I'm still writing my book, but as I put the book together, one of my core concepts is that whenever you come up with a, a value, you have to be able to define it as clearly as possible. So if I said that to you, a, a, a five-year-old walked up, probably not a five-year-old, let's go with the other, op- the other option. Someone highly intelligent, but for whom English isn't a first language, says to you, I've never heard the word before. What does it mean? What do you tell them? Well, I think I go back to that wholeness. Mm-hmm. Now, you're using air quotes here, and uh, it's good because you guys can clearly see me on on the podcast. Um, <clears throat> but I think to me, integrity just means being whole, means being uh, true to who you are. It means embodying your your values. So it's kind of a, a the value of embodying your values. And see, that's where I had the challenge because I was trying to figure out how to define integrity as a value. And what I kept right. coming up with is that well, it's something more than a value. Like the idea, integrity is what happens when you create a core set of values that you use as criteria for decision making. And then you always use them as criteria for yes. decision making, even when it doesn't necessarily work out for you. Yeah. And so integrity emerges from identifying and living values. It isn't a value in and of itself. Hmm. What's your response to that? Integrity is not a value in and of itself because it. But you know what? I, th- I again, I kind of feel like it's it's the value of values of having values or living your values. So I don't know. I'm going to hang on to it as a as a value. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how else to defend that. Well, let, let's talk about compassion. Yep. Now, the same question: How do you define what compassion means? Uh, compassion to me means being sympathetic. Uh, to other people's difficulties, struggles. Um, and I think maybe empathy sort of plays in. They're, they're almost, uh, you know, a bundle set of values, uh, if you're going to go go that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, just, you know, when I look around, um, I, th- I think the world lacks compassion. Um, we're not tolerant. We don't uh, take the time to sort of, and again, this comes back to empathy, try and understand how other people are feeling. Now, what's interesting is you've had a variety of different leadership roles. And one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you is there's sort of four four angles from which you've gotten to see leadership in a way that I thought would be useful to the individuals listening. And the first is you are a business owner. You're, yes. you're a very successful entrepreneur. You've got other people whose livelihoods depend on the company that you helped build. So I know a lot of people who listen to these podcasts and are sort of, I want to be an entrepreneur. Or I, I am where you are, or I hope to get where you are. Right. And then you've got you're an endurance athlete. I don't. I didn't know if it was extreme athlete. I think I don't know if that word's still the '90s. But <laughs> you do things with your body that I don't understand. And, and like, I don't know if it's an Ironman, but you have run yes. triathlon, so you've yeah. done the Ironman. Yeah. And I know that you are a rock climber now as yeah. well, long distance running. So that's also a part uh, of your life. You are a father. 
Yes. And you are also someone who lost someone important to you. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But there's four, and that's not all of who you are. Right. But I looked and I said, here's four aspects of Mike. He is a business owner. He is an endurance athlete, a father, and he's somebody who, who lost someone important to him. So can you talk about leadership from each of those different perspectives? If you thought about it, what... What has each one of those roles in your life taught you about leadership? Is it the same thing from each one, or has each one taught you something different? Well, I don't know. That's actually that's a great question. I haven't really thought about that one. Um, so if we if we try and compartmentalize them, I mean, the business thing. Um, I mean, there's just so many lessons on leadership that I've learned running a business. Um, you know, from managing managing yourself, managing others, and I, I think some of that comes back to the values as well, you know, specifically empathy, um, understanding where other people are in their life. Uh, if you have, if you want to have any hope of leading anybody or having them follow you, so to speak, uh, you have to understand where they are so that you can communicate to them, talk their language, speak in a way that they'll understand. Um, and I think that that's probably been one of the biggest lessons I've learned in business. Um, you know, when I first opened my shop, uh, it was me and an assistant. So we, you know, it was a one-man show with with an assistant. Uh, I had about five other individuals that worked with the organization I used to work with, and I had this big idea that I was going to uh, create this partnership and invite everybody in and be partners, and we were going to do all kinds of wonderful things and set the world on fire. And uh, I was excited about it. Like I was super excited about it. I spent all kinds of time putting together structure and sales pitch and getting getting everything ready to go and I, I went and I sat down with all these people individually and none of them had any interest in owning a business they just wanted to do their job do what they were doing and do it well and it was a real eye-opener for me that wait a minute what do you mean not everybody actually thinks like I do and doesn't get excited about the same things that I do uh, so again it, when we come back to the value of empathy uh, empathy is the ability to understand from somebody else's perspective how they're feeling. Uh, and I think that was that was probably my first big, big lesson. Because, again, I spent a lot of time, energy, and resources trying to put together this structure that I thought everybody would be ecstatic about. And when I presented it, um, they all ended up coming over and working for me, by the way. But none of them were interested in the value proposition I thought I was bringing. And so the idea is you're like, okay, people are going to want to work for me. They need a piece of of being in charge. And yes. what you discovered when you talked to them is people were like, I don't really want to deal with that. Yes, that was exactly it. That and was exactly it. Just give me the structure, the infrastructure, so I can put my head down, do my job, do a good job, make a decent living, and you deal with the headaches. You know, again, as, as, a, as a guy that's got that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and drive, I, th I think I kind of assumed everybody had that. Everybody wanted to be a boss. And, and when you hear that they don't, I mean... Was there a judgment that happened? I know that we work really hard. We talk about empathy. We talk about compassion. But I, I try to be as honest as we can on this. Is there a moment where you like everyone has that entrepreneurial drive? Not everyone does. Do you find it hard when you meet someone who doesn't to be like, oh, okay, that's totally cool? Or is there always this little voice that goes, how can you not? 
I think today I, I'm much better mm-hmm. at, at the trying to understand. And again, that comes back to trying to embody the value of empathy, trying to be able to look at things from other people's perspectives. Uh, historically, absolutely. Like, are, are, are you crazy? Like, do you not see the opportunity I'm giving you here that I, I'm putting in front of you? And again, in hindsight, I mean, we've continued to build a, a fantastic organization and, you know, they've helped me do it. Um, they just didn't want a piece of it because they didn't want the responsibility. And, that, and that's fine. Uh, but certainly at the time, yeah, I was scratching my head going, I don't get it. I really don't get it. And, and I think that was the bigger piece. It was less, um, less judgment and, and more just lack of understanding. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that they wouldn't want a piece of this beautiful thing that we were go- going to create. And it's weird because you talk about the importance of trying to see things from other people's perspective. Did that naturally come or is that something you had to work at? And and one of the things I always want is if you're listening and someone's like, ah, like I'd love to do that, but I just it it's not my instinct. What tips would you provide to someone to say, look, here's some of the ways that I try to make sure that I'm I'm trying to look at things from other people's point of view. Yeah, this one's a this one's a work in progress for sure. Because because uh, I, I think patience is, is something that historically I've lacked. Um, so you know. I, we could jump into all kinds of different topics uh, from here. So, so what do I do to, to try and do that? And, and I think a large part of that is just awareness. Um, being able to identify the fact that, hey, step back for a second and just think about the fact that maybe I need to look at this from somebody else's perspective. Um, so just, I think, constantly challenging yourself internally and asking that question. You know, we've talked a lot about questions, and I think a large part of making change is ask, asking questions. And I, I talk about that in my sales presentation. Um, there's actually science behind the fact that when you ask questions, you create new neural pathways. So you phys- physiologically change your way of thinking by asking questions. Um, so I'm totally setting you up here because I know your stuff, but but it's true, right? The more questions you ask... Uh, the more present you become, the more aware you become, the more aware you are, the quicker you can make changes. So I think that's the key. What's interesting is that I was once doing a presentation with a, a group of students from Africa with Engineers Without Borders. And th- these are brilliant young students. But there is a bit of, you sometimes forget because they speak English so well, yes. that there's still this language gap. And finally, we were talking about empathy. And, and one of the students said, excuse me. You, you say sympathy, you say empathy. Could you explain the difference between the two? And, you know, we it was kind of a battle uh, for us to actually articulate the difference. Right. You know, it, sympathy is feeling for someone and empathy is trying to feel with someone. And we talk, you know, Brene Brown is, has done some brilliant yeah. stuff on that. But we one of the facilitators said, well, empathy is trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And one of the students, this brilliant young guy, looks and, and he looks really confused at that. And he says, well, why would you just put on their shoes? <laughs> why wouldn't you put on all of their clothing if you truly wanted to understand? And I thought, and, and it's weird because when I, I talk about how you could operationalize values using a question, and mine yes. has often been when it comes to empathy, how have I worn someone else's clothes today? Right. Which is odd. I know because unless you know that little backstory, but one of the things I think is important when you create these questions is make it something that makes sense to you, that makes you smile when you say it. So yes. how have I worn somebody else's clothes today? I, I think is is a way of sort of reminding yourself that don't just sort of cursory down to like how do they might think about it. Right. No. What really is it? 
uh, that this person, how are they going to see it? What's the number one way that someone could see this situation differently than me? Yeah. And again, the awareness piece is, is huge. Um, you know, that comes back to, to presence, you know, being in the moment. Uh, and it comes back to all of this comes back to practice. Um, I don't know if it was you and I that were talking at, at one point, um, and I don't know if it was somebody that, that said it or I pieced it together from, from conversations, but uh, uh, one of my, my recent mantras is stop trying and start practicing. Um, problem with trying is it sets us up for failure. You know, if we try something and don't succeed, we failed. Well, I tried that. I stop. Well, when you practice, you just keep getting better every day. So if you change that for me, it just changing that mindset a little bit and understanding that I'm going to screw up, uh, but I keep practicing. And the more I practice, the better I get. Um, so I try and do little exercises like things like at the grocery store, reading the cashier's name tag, calling them by name. Uh, the Tim Hortons, my local Tim Hortons, uh, the whole team there knows me now. So quite often, you know, if it's it's the core group of, of ladies there, they'll come over to the window when I go through the drive-thru and, and they know me by name and, and uh, they'll all come over and wave at me and say, good morning, Mike. Um, because I took the time to actually pay attention to who they are. So doing things like that, um, it's just practice, right? And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. It becomes a habit, uh, and you get much better at it. And it, it it becomes much easier to empathize with people. And I, I like, and you know, I love going at these cliches that people throw around. And one of them that you know, the it, it's not. It's not failure if you learn something from right. it. And I, I was talking to a couple of engineers once, and they're like, no, it's really failure, like sometimes. <laughs> like there is a line at which you should fail lots along the way. You should iterate a lot and try different things. Yes. But eventually, the reason you do that is so that there is a line. They called it the epicenter of probability of imminent catastrophe or the <laughs> epic fail line where you couldn't fail afterwards. But I love what you just did. You reframed I'm not trying, I'm not failing, yes. I'm practicing. Because when you practice something, like practice really is just repeated failure over and over Absolutely. again. And yet to think of it instead of, oh, I'm failing or I'm trying and switch it to practice, that's a really great insight. Yeah. Like, And okay, you talk about living in the moment and being present. And you do things where the moment is going to suck. Yes. And, and let's move on to your life as, and I don't understand this, man, like deciding to... What is it? Remind me what a triathlon is. It's yeah. Well, the, the Ironman is is a three point eight kilometer swim, hundred and eighty kilometer bike, and uh, we wrap it up with a little run. A little run, yeah. Which is forty two point two kilometers. Okay, mar marathon. Okay. In those moments, it's odd you talk about being in the moment, yes. but I can imagine that some of those moments you don't want to live there. Like they must suck. So, what have you learned? Like what is lead? Like what is, has doing those things? First of all, why on earth do you do them? <laughs> oh, and then that, what have they taught you? you? You want the story as to why I I do that? Yeah, um, that was actually really cool, and that comes back to uh, I use this story to illustrate a, a sales insight, uh, which isn't totally sales. It's 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 kind of life, uh, and that is the fact that we make decisions based on emotion and we justify them by logic. So why did why why the heck would I do an iron distance triathlon? My uh, kids uh, at the time uh, were eight and twelve years old. They both did um, sorry ten and twelve years old. Both did triathlon, 
and it was the Edmonton ITU race that uh, my son was doing. Hold on, and at, at 12? Yes, yeah. It, the distances are different. So okay, they're not, they're, I was yeah, going to say. He's, like, not, he's not doing an iron distance triathlon. So his distances at 12 are starting to get pretty real, though. Yeah. It's a 300-meter swim. It was, a, I think, a 15K bike and a 3K run. I don't think so, I, I did that cumulatively in my life <laughs> till I was 17. <laughs> So, so we go to, we go to the triathlon and, uh, I'm watching my son go do his thing and I meet him at the end and he's all a sweaty mess and I give him a big high five and a big old sweaty hug. And, you know, I mean, total proud papa moment. And he starts telling me, yeah, you know what, dad, it was fantastic. I was into the swim and I did really well. And I got out ahead of the pack and I did this and I did that. Cause he's really strong on the swim. He says, yeah. And the bike was, you know, it was okay. And I probably went, you know, he's recapping, talking about what he would have done different. He says, yeah. And the, and the run was great. I felt really good on the run. And, uh, then he kind of stops and he looks at me and he says, you know, he says, you should do Kelowna with me. And we'd talked about going to Kelowna cause they had a, a triathlon there that, you know, Kelowna is just a great place to vacation. And, uh, so I looked at him and what do you think I said? I mean, I'm bursting with pride and, and your 12 year old son who just finished the triathlon says we should do a race together. Emotional decision. Absolutely. We should son. So in now justified by logic, Kelowna had a try-a-try, which was a 300-meter swim, a 15K bike, and a 3K run. I'd run a marathon before, never swam, but, eh, it's only 300 meters. I can figure it out. So, so that's what got me into the sport, and then I did that race, absolutely fell in love with the sport. You know, I'm getting older, and, and the running starts taking a toll on the body. So um, when you can add those other two disciplines, you, you know, it gives there. you a bit of a balance. You're talking about commitment through. isn't just to yourself. Because I would think, okay, commitment's an internal thing. What made you do it? And I, I think this is interesting if you're listening. Commitment means creating a sense of public accountability in some way? Yeah, well, whether it's public or, or not. I mean, I think for me at least, uh, you know, and I, I can only speak to what works for me. Because, again, understanding that everybody uh, tracks a little bit differently. But for me, I needed that public accountability. Um, so whether you know it's a matter of of telling telling a friend, um, but having some kind of a- accountability, I think is key in in everything. Now, I read a blog post. Tell us about Sharon. Sharon, yes, my uh, my aunt. Uh, this was this was actually just last year. So this that was the the long race, the Iron Distance race I did was 2013. Um, last year, I went back out to Penticton and I did the half iron. Uh, distance race but leading up to that they have all kinds of events and uh, my aunt who is uh, 65 years old and and you know not overly fit or 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 active although she she's working on that um, she decided she was going to do the 5k fun run leading up to to the event so when we were in Penticton, uh, she had us over for dinner and, and uh, she's telling us a story about how she did this race. And she says, you know, I decided I was going to do it because, you know, I just wanted to get out and have something to be active and, and work towards. She goes, I knew full well I was going to be dead last, but that was all right. So she's telling us a story. She says, uh, you know, I get about a kilometer and a half away from the finish line. And she says, this kid on a bike starts riding beside me. And when she says kid, you know, he's probably in his mid, mid to late 20s. But to her, it's like, this kid on a bike is riding beside me. She says, so I looked over at him. I said, you're here because I'm last, aren't you? He says, yep, I'm afraid so. But you're doing great. You're doing great. And he starts cheering her on and cheering her in. And she gets to within a, a, a few hundred meters of the finish line. And, and he says, okay, I'm going to ride ahead and let him know that you're coming in. 
and uh, she looks up and she can see they've started pulling down the the finish line. They've started packing up the PA system already, and she is absolutely dead last. Like she's so far last that they've started packing stuff up. So he gets he gets uh, the guy on the bike, Lauren, I think was his name, uh, gets to the finish line and lets him know that she's still out on the course. Um, so they start setting everything back up again, announce her in, and they actually bring out Jeff Simons, who's a professional triathlete, to run across the finish line with her. See, that, and Lauren, and see, the interesting thing is you know his name. And I think there's a lesson in that there, that you remember the guy, well, she remembered his yes. name and told you, and yes. you repeating it as well. Like, that's the type of leadership. And, and and really, to think that the people who also then turned around, and you could see the ripple effects, right? They start setting the stuff yes. back up, too. Like it's it's the the compassion and the, and the the empathy there. Like this woman is giving it her all. That's a yeah. I love that story. I, yeah. I wanted to make sure that we shared it. So it's um, I talked about you know being present in the moment. Something you told me once that actually has really helped me through some difficult times. I actually tweeted out today. Maybe I shouldn't have done it because I had a swear word in it. I'll do it again here. I said everything you want in the world is on the other side of something shitty. Yes, And that actually is based, I don't know if it's you that said it or if it's a triathlete mantra, but you once said, embrace the suck. And, yes. and, and I, I never forgotten that term, like embrace the suck. Tell us a little bit about what's wrapped up in that for you. Yeah, so, so that, I mean, I think that's a military thing. Um, I think the Marines talk about that. Uh, for me, that came out of, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Chris McCormick, who's a professional triathlete. And he, he wrote an article called Embrace the Suck. And he talked about exactly that. And going back to your earlier question in triathlon in long distance triathlon there's a point where it's gonna suck doesn't matter how much training you've done at some point it is gonna suck you just cannot train your way through it so when I when I read that it it really resonated uh, with me and it you know not just from the sport aspect of it but I always like to take these things and and look at what lessons we can take from them and apply to life so I sort of twisted that a little bit and took it and I rewrote uh, an article about Embrace the Suck uh, where I talked about the same is true in life. It doesn't matter how much preparation you put forward, how good a person you are, how many skills you have. At some point, life is going to suck and you cannot avoid it. You just absolutely cannot avoid it. The flip side of that is the suck is temporary. Emotions are fleeting. Uh, eventually, they dissipate. And what I've found in my experience for me is that the more I try and fight those shitty feelings, those negative emotions, the longer they stick around. So, you know, whatever, whatever the, uh, the event is that causes the negative feelings and emotions, um, I've stopped running away from them and, and dived into them head first. And what I found for me is that that helps them dissipate that much faster. So you're not talking about dwelling on them. No. So what's the difference between dwelling on them and what you're talking about? Dwelling, you know, again, I, th- I think that comes back to sort of that pity party. Um, dwelling on them, yeah, I, I, I think that can be negative um, versus em- embracing them, which just means you allow them to happen. You experience them, you feel them, you let them happen, understanding that at some point they disappear, right? They are going to vanish. This isn't a permanent feeling. Um, and seeing what you can learn from it, again, sort of step, trying to step outside yourself 
Um, maybe it's even having empathy for yourself, right? Um, being able to, to just fully embrace the experience, um, watch it, notice it, live it, experience it, and learn from it. So dwelling is holding on to it, and, and you're talking about moving through it. Yeah, exactly. So embracing is moving through it, dwelling is... Holding on, it's holding when, on, yeah, okay, yeah, and you and I think you brought it back. You, I know you said it to me at some point where we were talking about uh, endurance running or, or, or triathlon, and then when I saw it again from you, it was after uh, the very definition of life sucking that happened. Yes, uh, tell us a little bit about about that and about about Colleen. You bet. Um, yeah, if I pause, you'll you'll know why this this is going to be a little uh, challenging, but. Uh, on Oct- October 2nd uh, of 2015, uh, my girlfriend Colleen was ambushed on her driveway by an ex-boyfriend. Uh, she was shot and killed, and uh, he then killed himself. So yeah, life kind of sucked for a, for a while there. How did you... The, that's the very... like That's the epicenter of... We're talking about sucking. It's, it's weird. The word suck almost, it almost is perfect. And at the same time, it doesn't really cover it yes. enough. What did that experience and what had, because one of the reasons I want to talk to you is the way you've dealt with that, the way you have taken and turned it into a force for good. It impresses me in so many ways. What are the big lessons that, that having to deal with that has taught you? And in what ways has it changed you? Good and bad. Well, honestly, I don't know what the lessons are yet because I think I think I'm still learning them. Um, the the you know again, there's just been so many things, and I think I said this to you before. I, I kind of feel like my entire life has led me to this moment or prepared me for this moment, and, and I just you know I know knowing who she is and what we learned together. Um, what she would want to see come out of this, uh, and the potential for good, you know, this comes back to again, cliche, but turning pain into purpose. Um, and for me, that's the only option, you know, I, uh, Colleen and I used to always talk philosophy. We'd have some fabulous conversations and, uh, you know, one of the the things we talked about at one point was talent. And I asked her what, what her talent, um, was and as she was an artist, a photographer, a videographer, a painter, a potter, a sculptor, um, she made things beautiful, and that's what she said. She said, I make things beautiful, and she turned it around and said, well, What do you think your talent is? And I said, Ah, you know, I kind of hummed and hawed, and I said, I don't know that I have a specific talent, and again, not, not to be self deprecating. Granted, I've done done fairly well, and and I'd be successful by most definitions. But I'm not a guy that is sort of naturally gifted at any one thing. I don't think I have a specific talent. So I said, "Well, what do you think my talent is?" Because I I'm not sure I have one. And she said, "Oh, that's easy. You've got a much more useful talent." And I said, "Oh, what's that?" She says, "You make shit happen." And I kind of chuckled, and and so we we laughed. Uh, so, you know, there you had it. She made, she made things beautiful and I made shit happen. So together we were going to make beautiful shit happen. So for me, it's time to make beautiful shit happen for my girl. And what do you want that to be? Well, we're still figuring that out. Um, but you know, you and I have talked about the, the redefining badass. 
Um, and that was something that uh, she used to tease me about all the time as, you know, uh, do an Ironman triathlon. Uh, I did CrossFit with her. We did yoga together. She got me into climbing. Um, and she used to always tease me about being badass. And, uh, you know, when we went to Penticton, that story I just told you, when we went to Penticton, we went to watch my race. And she had a passion for climbing. So I wanted to make sure we got some climbing in because there's some beautiful climbing at, at the Skaha Bluffs. Um, unfortunately we only had one extra day after the race and I wasn't going to go climbing before the race. So, uh, we ended up having to go climbing the Monday after I finished the race on Sunday. So of course she teased me about how badass that was. And, uh, you know, then we went over to, for dinner at my aunt's place and she told us that story that I shared with you. And, and, uh, she got up to clear the dishes for dinner. Colleen just looked at me she goes, you know what, Mike? She says, that's fucking badass. And, the entire 10 and a half hour drive home, Colleen and I talked about what it really means to be badass. And then, of course, you know, in the context of, of what happened to her, um, you know, there was a guy that probably thought he was pretty badass. Um, so, you know, I want to change. Well, I want to redefine badass. I, I, I want to change sort of that stereotypical definition of what it means to be a man. I, I want it to be OK for men to have feelings. I want it to be okay for us to cry. I want it to be okay for us to explore our emotions and understand um, all of these things. Because again, in her particular case, clearly this was a man that was not in touch with his emotions. Um, and I talked about it before. We make decisions based on emotion justified by logic. I mean, clearly that was an emotional decision with permanent consequences. So the idea is that we've traditionally thought that badass is this willingness to embrace the suck. The, but we think, I think we think it is physical, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Vin Diesel, Chuck Norris, this hyper-masculine bullshit that, that we get fed by the movies all the time. And, you know, as a man, I, I think it makes it very, very difficult for us— um, I was going to use the word evolve. I don't know if that's the right word, but it makes it difficult for us to grow because societally we're told to suck it up, suppress your emotions, man up. Um, real men don't cry. Real men don't this. Real men don't that. Uh, and I think that's a real problem. I think it's a real problem. You know, come back to emotional intelligence, which I think is probably one of the most important things in life, especially in business, you know, empathy is, is a big part of that. And being able to understand your emotions, other people's emotions, uh, is critical because we make decisions based on emotion. If we don't understand the underlying emotion, we can't make rational decisions. We can't understand the decisions we make. So the problem is we've got a culture of men that feel the need to suppress those emotions and it's not okay to embrace them. It's not okay um, to learn from them. And, you know, for me, it starts with my 15-year-old my boy at home. And uh, so, so my hope is that we can change that. So the idea that to be a true badass means to be willing to be open to all of yourself, not just the, the part others can see, not just the part that pushes you physically, but it actually, you know, you're talking about redefining badass from being this outward physical power manifestation and recognizing that real badassery is an, the willingness 
to embrace who you are entirely, including the, the parts that feel weak, including the parts that feel scared, including the parts that feel hurt? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, uh, driving driving home uh, from Penticton, we were listening to, Colleen and I were listening to, uh, Tim Ferriss had Brene Brown on. And at one point in the interview, he asked her, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but he asked her something to the effect of, what do you think of the over-feminization of boys? And uh, she had a brilliant response. She talked about the fact that, you know, masculine and feminine aren't mutually exclusive. Um, And she said something that brought it all home for me. Uh, And that was, again, something to the effect of the right combination of tough and tender is the equation for badassery. And that hit home for me. So, again, that combination of tough and tender, that perfect balance of head and heart, um, you know, and we had a speaker out at one point that talked about that balance of head and heart. And that's how I, I would describe Colleen. She was that perfect balance of head and heart. Uh, and I think that's, you know, to me, that's, that's what a badass is. So you can't just be fast. You can't just be strong. You can't just be daring. You also have to be open. Yes. I'm just trying to get a real thing. Because if someone's listening, I want them to be like, am I a badass? Right. So, I, And so if, if, if someone said, look, I'm sitting here, I'm driving in my car, I'm listening, and I want to know, am I the type of badass that you're talking about? Or am I holding back something? What questions would you tell them they have to ask themselves? Ah, that's a fantastic one. And I should have known to sit down and figure that out before I came on here. Um, that's a good question. And I, I think... Again, that, that balance of tough and tender, the balance of head and heart. So how do we measure that? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. What would you ask? Well, <laughs> what am I letting live rent-free in my head? Mm. I think, um, you know, there's a, a, a TED talk I did that, a TEDx talk I did, I'll link to uh, on the podcast. But I think a big part of whether you're truly badass is whether or not you're letting people take up space in your head and your heart when they're not giving you anything valuable. Like, like, um, I met it, I learned it from a guy in the desert and I'm sure I've seen it on posters since then, but he was the first guy ever said it to me. He said, you know, your head and your heart are the most valuable piece of property you ever own. And like a landlord, a landlord lets people use their property but they charge rent to get something valuable in return. Right. And so your head and your heart are such valuable pieces of property, you control them entirely, they're yours. So if you let someone into them, you have to get something valuable. And anger, bitterness, and sadness are not valuable. Yes. And yet so many of us are accepting anger, bitterness, and sadness. And letting go of that to say, you know, I'm not going to hold people in, into, in my head and my heart who are no longer bringing me value. I heard a great phrase that said, you have to get up and leave the table when love is no longer being served. Right. So, you know, I'd say to people... And again, this is your concept, but I remember when you said it to me, I asked myself, am I a badass? And you are not a true badass if you haven't admitted, and this is one of our other guests said this, someone asked him once to simply say, I was hurt by that. And he said, I had real trouble saying the words out loud. So can you say out loud, I am hurt? Uh, can you say that there are things that are you have not forgiven people and you're holding that on to? Because when you said, am I a badass, I started to ask myself, I'm not a badass till I let go of these things right. that are living rent-free in my head and my heart. Yeah. And, and so, and you did. Like, you wrote a blog post 
several months after Colleen's death that that said that you forgave this man for that. And that to me is one of the most remarkably badass things I've ever seen. How on I just got asked you straight up. Yeah. How and why? Why did because he's never going to read it. Well, well, and uh, no, I mean, but but that's the thing. Like he, he's he's gone. He killed himself. So he he's not here. Holding on to anger, the only the only person that hurts is me. It doesn't do anybody else harm. Um, but I got to tell you, that was the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my life, and I talk about that in the post. Um, you, you know, I, I, I thought originally, <laughs> I, I thought the most difficult thing I had to do in my life was tell my kids when I split with, with their, their mom, um, that was hard, you know, and then a few years after that, Colleen gets killed. And I thought, once again, this is the most difficult thing I've ever had to endure in my life. And then I was introduced to, uh, a parable called the little soul in the sun and, uh, it, it talks about um, forgiveness and uh, it talks about the fact that, you know, there, there is no good without bad. There is no light without darkness. And again, you'll have to read the parable, but, but basically um, God sends or allows the evil to happen so that you could experience forgiveness is, is kind of the gist of the, of the parable. I'm, I'm kind of butchering it, but... I had three people in three separate occasions uh, refer that parable to me after this happened. And w- when I read it, I just absolutely lost my shit because I realized what I had to do. And I realized that that, in fact, was going to be the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my life. Was it the right thing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, that's the the dwelling on versus embracing and moving through. Uh, if I wanted to dwell on it, sure, I could I could hang on to it, um, and, and I I get that it's hard it's hard to fathom, and I don't know. And I've I've had you know the interesting part of of this is as you know I'm I'm a pretty uh, public guy when it comes to social media and things, so um, I I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve as a human being, and I I also do it via social media. Um, so there's been just so many people that have reached out to me afterwards that have had sort of horrific experiences of their own and cannot wrap their head around the forgiveness piece. Uh, and, and I don't know how to answer, you know, when they ask it, how do you do that? And I don't know what the answer is, except for the fact that I, I quickly understood that all that was going to holding onto that anger all that was going to do is eat me up inside and prevent me from making beautiful shit happen. And, and that, that I can't have that I can't have. You wrote a, a really beautiful piece. Uh, and I remember, I remember saying it's one of the most romantic things I've ever, <laughs> I've ever read with the, like with a title that says it's not. And you say, I love you is bullshit. Yes. A- and I, th- I thought, Oh my gosh. And I thought, Oh no, you know, he's gone from forgiveness to, to bitterness and then I open it up tell, tell us what you were getting at when you said I love you is bullshit because I think it really gets to the type of daily leadership what you were trying to embrace there what it really means yeah so, so I mean what I talk about in, in that particular article article it's, it's kind of twofold I mean I, I talk about you know is there really the one um, you know which is something we could probably have an hour-long conversation on all by itself 
Um, but then I also talk about the fact that the words, I love you, uh, and I call them bullshit because, you know, I think of in, in my particular circumstance, um, you know, I, I was married to a woman for 15 years that I told pretty much every day, I love you. Um, and clearly at the end, I, d- I didn't. Um, and I think sometimes we end up using words as crutches, especially I love you, because it, it is so easy to say. Um, but what would you do if I took those words away from you? How would, how would your spouse, your significant other, how would they actually know that you love them? So if we took the words away, would they actually know that? So it's, it's I, I never, I didn't, did you actually say that in the article? Because I know the article talked about it, but that, that just kind of flattened me there. <laughs> like, if you remove the words, do your actions show that very thing? And could you actually sit down and take stock of the actions that mean I love you? Is that that's what you're getting? Yeah, at? that's exactly it. And I in, in the article, I you know, I give a couple of examples. Uh, and you know, if you think back on on relationships, I'm sure you can find lots of examples. You know, with Colleen, uh, there was one night fairly close to, to the end where, uh, you know, she woke up at, at, I don't know, must have been three o'clock in the morning or something and, and uh, couldn't sleep. So she, she uh, came over and, and sort of nudged me and said she was going to go home. She had to teach yoga at 6 a.m. Uh, anyway, so she said she, was, she just couldn't sleep and she, so she was going to head home. Um, I kind of shuffled over and, and said, no, no, no. And she, she lay down and I just, I, I, uh, I stayed awake and I just stroked her back gently until she fell asleep. Um, you know, and then we got up together in the morning, had coffee and she went out and, and taught yoga. And I just think, you know, that kind of thing, um, says I love you. And again, I can't remember exactly what I, which examples I wrote about, but you know, the Penticton one was another perfect example. This woman had a passion for climbing and, uh, so I made damn sure that we got out for a climb, even though I felt like hell the day after that race. And so the, I, I, sorry, I'm still dwelling because <laughs> I think what I'm doing is I'm in my head taking stock of relationships with people that I love. And I am sort of asking myself, if you weren't allowed to say it, like have you, have I actively been making sure that there's more than just the words? Yeah. That's a, that's a really, and I hope that, I bet you people are listening thinking the same thing. Like, think of the people who you do love, and you just have to peel away the words and say, "Okay, if all it's like the um, the the thing the scenario that I often say to people: if someone followed you around for yes a month, and all they had to go on was your behavior. If someone followed you in in, in your most important relationships around for a month, and at the end were asked, "Does this person love this person?" and they could not hear any of the actual yeah. verbal exchanges between you. That's that's a powerful question. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's the same question, you know, even if you'd move it out of the love scenario and you're talking about working with teams, working in offices. Yeah. Imagine people watched you with the sound off and all they could really see are the behaviors. And afterwards they're like, which one of these individuals are they proud of? Which one of these individuals do they love? Which one of these individuals do do they think highly of? Yeah. Because you talk about empathy. How the people watching from the outside see it is probably how the people you're trying to demonstrate pride or love or gratitude to are seeing it as well. Yeah, that's absolutely. A, that's a that's a really powerful way, man. Yeah, and what, you know, one of the things that we've often talked about uh, at a business level, you know, social media is all the rage, and uh, so I often ask my team, um, 
what what would our business look like if everything we did was on Twitter, like every interaction, you know? So again, it was it was public, so same same kind of scenario. Uh, would we be proud of everything we do? And again, that comes back to integrity, right? Um, do the things that you do when no one's around? Do they reflect your values, even even when people can't see it? Uh, and I think to me that's integrity. And you're talking, you talk about uh, redefining badass into making sure that it's having the courage to be open with yourself and others about how you feel. You talk about you, you talk about the importance of womaning up. Yes, that men need to woman up. But tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I think that's the that exact concept is is you know we need to stop manning up and we need to start womaning up um and being able to be okay with having feelings and being able to explore them you know i I listened to uh it was a number of years ago and probably one of the well the second best speaker i've ever seen present company excluded um was frank abagnale uh the catch me if you can guy and uh you know he he gave and it was just, it, it was unbelievable. You know, when he first started, um, he had a very monotonous voice and I kind of thought, oh man, we got to listen to this guy for 45 minutes. And in a blink of an eye, the 45 minutes was done and he wrapped up with something to the effect of, so that's my story, but I got to tell you, a real man is a man that loves his family. A real man doesn't step out on his wife, a real man this and a real man that. And he just drove it home and it was all of these types of things that we're talking about. And you look around the room, there was not a dry eye in the house. It was, it was amazing. It was a, it was an industry conference. Um, and you know, out in the lobby afterwards, you could see all the guys on the phone, you know, phoning home, checking in with their significant other. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was powerful. Um, but he talked a lot about that, um, what it means to be a man or a real man, quote unquote, um, and, and being in touch with your emotions. So I, I think, you know, like I said earlier, that, that being able to, you know, you talked about being open with yourself and others, and I think it's got to start with yourself. And I think that's where sometimes we fall down is because we hear these, you know, vulnerability is a big one people talk about. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think vulnerability is extremely powerful, but I don't think that's something you can force. And I don't think that's something that doesn't mean airing all your dirty laundry on Facebook. Um, I think it, it's got to start with you. You've got to take the time to understand where you are vulnerable. Um, you know, you've got to understand your emotions, your feelings before you can express them outwardly, before you can be open to others. You've got to be open to yourself and you've got to be honest with yourself. Um, and that's, that's critical. And I think a lot of people, you know, we talked about this a little bit at, at dinner. Um, you, you gotta be honest with yourself. Like it's okay to be this way or that way. Um, but don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. And I think that's a big part of it. Well, it's interesting when you talk about vulnerability and it's become something that people talk a lot. And I think that's important because Brene Brown has been a big part of this and a lot of her stuff is just brilliant. Yes. But I've also found, now I've left Facebook, um, but before I did, there was a lot of, oh, here's my vulnerability post. Right. And it seemed to me it wasn't about what you said. And I love what you said there. Vulnerability has to start with being vulnerable to yourself, being able to say, 
I don't like the fact that this is true about me. Yes. But I'm going to acknowledge that it's true. And yet a lot of people are using it as an opportunity to, as you say, air sort of almost to, to attract sympathy. And I've, and people yes. are like, oh, it's important to be vulnerable. And I say, I think your vulnerability is powerful when it underscores your strength. And that is to say, you know, you say, you show people what you're capable of, how you can make yourself feel better, others feel better, how you can accomplish things effectively. And then you're open about the challenges that you had to go through to get there. Yes. And I think people find that, oh my gosh. I mean, I, I deal with this as a speaker sometimes when I go up and I say, well, I'm bipolar or I'm a recovering alcoholic. And people say, well, how did you, I, I didn't realize any of that. I just assumed that if you do this, you've got your your crap together. Yes. I, I had one student email me and say, I just assumed you had your shit together. And then to find out you didn't actually made me like you more. Yes. I think that's when your vulnerability, it has to be, it has to be, a, an underscore of your strength. It has to be in co- conjunction with your strength. But if the first thing people think about you every time they think about you is your vulnerability, I don't think that's healthy. And I think that right. we're, getting, we're getting too much of that. People are saying, "I'm just here's me being vulnerable. I'm like, well, vulnerable and weak are, you do too much vulnerable. And unfortunately, the reason people say, oh, you should be vulnerable, it doesn't mean weakness. But if you always lead with your vulnerability, if it never supports the fact that you should celebrate your strength in the face of this vulnerability, I think that's when it starts to actually mean weakness. Yes. Well, and again, acknowledging acknowledging your, your weaknesses or your vulnerabilities um, comes back to what we talked about before, awareness. Uh, you can't fix things. You can't... Yeah. Was it, it was a... Um, Oh, I can't remember who who said it, Ramdas or or Rumi or or uh, um, one of those those teachers. Um, but if you don't know you're in prison, escape is impossible. Um, so again, understanding where your weaknesses are, your vulnerabilities are, you can't improve them uh, unless you understand them first. So I I think uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's not just about putting it out there for the sake of putting it out there because it's sort of the popular thing to do these days or someone's going to write you a nice note and say hey right. it's all okay because like it's don't post it unless you've come to grips with it yes I, I think you know acknowledge your vulnerability so that you can say okay this is something i have to deal with and then other people can get brought into that right but I, and, and maybe people will disagree with this but i've i started to watch i'm just like everything has been vulnerability and i think that then you almost start to be dwelling all right you start to think i am all of my vulnerabilities your vulnerabilities are things to not apologize for but they're also not things that should define you i think yes agreed okay sorry we're working through this uh on the spot as we go here (laughs) afterwards i'm gonna look back and be like what the hell was i talking about there and and you have some counterintuitive stuff that i've i've uh when i listen to your thoughts on leadership you kind of say, don't set goals. You said you oh, stopped setting yeah, goals. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, um, and, uh, oh yeah, remind me, we can, we can talk about the one, the milestone that I checked off, uh, in, in January, cause you wanted to talk about that. Um, so yeah, you know, for, for years, uh, as a young man getting into, into the business world, I, you know, I set financial goals, right? I had, had to make X number of dollars, uh, in income, um, I'd hit that, you know, those, that dollar amount would always increase. Um, 
the size of the company had to get bigger. Again, we, I had all these sort of materialistic goals. I, I wanted the Porsche, which I got. I wanted the GSX-R750, which I got. You know, I wanted the the nice house. I wanted this. I wanted that, which, you know, again, I'd, I'd set as targets um, and I'd go hit them. But there was never really any fulfillment because it was just moving from one thing to the next. And uh, what I realized is that if you blindly focus on a goal, so let's say the goal was to make a hundred thousand bucks a year, because you know certainly there was a, that was one of my first income goals. It was mine too. Is I want to make a hundred grand a year, and uh, the problem with that is the reality is I don't really want a hundred grand a year. I want what I think that's going to do for me. So whether it's you know taking more vacations. Um, being able to spend more time with my family, you know, which was important to me. So I would kind of kid myself into that if I, you know, if I had a million dollars in the bank, if I made a hundred grand a year, then I'd be able to. Um, but the problem is to make that kind of money, you know, I'd have to put my head down, focus entirely on, on work and work 12 hour days. And as a result, I'm spending less time with my family, but I'm justifying it because it's chasing this goal. That's going to allow me to have more time with my family, but I got to go back here because I got to spend more time in the office so I can make the money so that I can end up spending more time with my family. And whoa, holy shit, it's been 10 years and I haven't spent any time with my family because I've been chasing this. Well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I've been chasing this goal that just doesn't make any sense. So I had to shift my way of thinking. And again, maybe not for everybody, but, but for me, my experience was when I set them, I go get them. And I, I kind of blindly focus. And sometimes you end up losing sight of the things that, that really matter to you. Um, you know, so now I start with, with who I want to be versus what I want to have. You know, and, and one of the things I said in that article is, you know, they can take away what you have. They can never take away who you are. So focus on becoming more, not having more. And I think that is critical. Um, and that was underscored for me, you know, last year, clearly um, losing Colleen. You know, there, there's, uh, sorry. <laughs> the, the who you are piece is what really matters. You know, again, when I look at my kids, my 15 year old boy and my 13 year old girl, um, yeah, I mean, they kind of care about what we have, but I can pretty much assure you if they'd started with nothing and we never had anything and all they had was, was me and their mother, um, they'd be happy kids. And, uh, sometimes I think they might be happier if we didn't have all the stuff. So, so I've readjusted, um, and I look now at, at values, uh, intentions, and milestones. And milestones, you know, kind of come back to that sort of traditional goal, but it's, but it's not the be-all and end-all. It's just it's a stepping stone. Well, I, I, someone told me once that goals are things that you get. Milestones are things that you pass. Yes, exactly. And, and I think there's a difference there. And, and you also talk about it's, it's not what you have, it's who you are. And I think one thing, especially when I talk to younger people, because they don't feel like they're in charge of their own life. Because let's face it, right. for, for a lot of your life, you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day. You run a company, although that one thing we have learned is that doesn't mean you're always in charge of what you have to do every yes, day. Yes, absolutely. But you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day. But you're always in charge of who you are. Yes. And I think we don't necessarily flex that enough. 
like when once we let that's why I like to focus on what are your values and and what are you doing every day because when you go home at the end of the day you might be like well did I get this goal did I get this promotion did I acquire this car most days of your life the answer is going to be no right? right but you can say hey did I answer these questions all right did I did I live up to these values did I wear someone else's clothes today yes and if you can give yourself permission to say hey look everything outside of my control today blew up, blew up in my face but i still answered these questions i was still me the things that were completely in my control who i am i did actually live up to and i think a lot of nights we go to bed thinking oh i lost today so it was a waste but i think if you lived up to the person you want to be even in a fractional way you might lose today but it's not a waste. And I think that's the thing. It's the difference between losing a day. And, and by that, I mean, shit did not go well. Yes. Um, and like today goes in the L column. And there's a difference between that and then having a day be a waste. Yeah. That's what I think the true tragedy is. is when you go like today was a waste. There was no point to it. Right. Yeah. But you know what? If you rode ahead and told them to put back up the finish line. Yes. All right. That is not a waste. If you said to somebody, you know, I want you to redefine badass. You're spending your whole life l- trying to look like a badass as opposed to actually being one. Yes. Which means being someone strong enough to deal with the real triathlons in, in our lives, which is like for me, man, it's impressive that you did a triathlon. But yeah, and you forgave that guy. Like that to me is a way more impressive feat. And because I can't, like, I, there's still stuff I'm holding on to. Yeah. And, and I know that it's hard because I know people keep looking at you and being like, like how how like what's yeah. just step one well you know it, it's interesting I, I mean step one is always preparing i think it, it comes back to the practice thing right so even the physical stuff the the fitness stuff i mean i think that is a pretty key component as well um you know healthy body healthy mind again i know it's cliche but the truth of the matter is um if your body's not doing the things it needs to do and and granted not not suggesting everybody needs to go out and do an Ironman tomorrow um but for me it it forced me to do those things again the commitment the coaching the discipline uh having the discipline to do to to practice every day swimming I mean holy smokes man when I when I got into the pool you know I, I told you that that first one was was 300 meters and I thought ah no it's 300 meters like as a runner, I'm thinking 300 meters. That's like, if I told you to run 300 meters, that's, yeah, I can, I can do that in my sleep. Well, you get in the pool and I don't know if you swim at all, but holy smokes, man, the first 25 meters I tried to swim, it was like, oh my God, how the hell am I going to swim 300 meters? Um, but you get in the pool every day and you practice and eventually what was hard becomes easy. Was it a, you know, not to dwell on the forgiveness, but is that something you do once or is that a because you talk about practice like is it something you do once okay i've forgiven this person or is it something you have to do over and over again that's interesting because i've thought about that uh, a fair bit um i think for me it it was it was a monumental event to do that Uh, but there are certainly times where i have to go back and do that again um and for me, you know, my writing is, is sort of part of that therapy, so to speak. Uh, so I, I will often journal and, and, uh, and write about these things uh, for myself. Sometimes I'll go back and, you know, I may go back and read that particular article. Um, and I, I tell you, I, I can't read that article without falling apart. 
Um, but that comes back to the embracing the suck piece. Some days, some days I need to do that. Uh, and, and I'm okay with that, right? If I, if I've got to sit in, in my room and, and read that article and, uh, just replay it again, I'll do that. Um, so, so it's kind of, it's not necessarily a daily thing for me. Um, so I think the, 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 the big one was an event, uh, but there are certainly times where I have to come back and revisit that. And you're sharing this idea as far as wide this site. And it's interesting because I, I want to be clear, because you and I have talked about this. When you talk about womaning up if you're a man, when you talk about badassery is sort of being more whole, this isn't just focused on, on men or, or women. As a matter of fact, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is let's stop seeing it as two different sets of like, let's embrace the things that have been traditionally celebrated in one sex or the other for one sex or the other and saying, no, like we are whole as humans. So yes. we want to see men who, and I don't like saying traditionally, but yeah, things yeah. that have often been celebrated as, oh, you're nurturing, you're empathetic. Well, you know, men are tough. And and what we're starting to see, or are we starting to see it, and business might be rewarding it as well, is that individuals who say, I'm going to take the best parts of the things that have historically been reserved for one sex or gender or the other. Yeah, and and I, I think, you know, as we talked about uh, recently in an interview, I was asked what it means to be a man. Um, because obviously with this, you know, the domestic violence um, movement has has really sort of rallied around me as well. And, and I've got a ton of support there. And I've been reaching out to different organizations to find out where where our, you know, our story can, can help others. I mean, if, if her death can, can help prevent even one other, then, you know, that, that's a bit of a win. Um, so the question was posed to me, what does it mean to be a man? And, and I started thinking, I thought, okay, well, first off, that's a fantastic question to ask because I'm not sure most of us have ever actually sat down and thought about what does it mean to be a man? And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, the problem with that question is maybe it's not the right question. The problem with that question is that it sets us up for differences. So, you know, if you've got that sort of Venn diagram of, of masculine on the left and feminine on the, on the right, um, you know, defining each gender differently presupposes that there's not a huge overlap and we end up creating this giant divide in the middle. Um, and we maybe reinforce some of those stereotypes without meaning to, because, you know, we're, again, we're trying to, to redefine what it means to be a man. So maybe we shouldn't be talking about what does it mean to be a man and accept the fact that that, you know, men and women, we're, we're more similar than we are different. Uh, and maybe we should just be talking about what does it mean to be a good human being or what does it mean to be a human being? Whether you fall on, you know, whether you're a man and you fall on the, hyper-masculine side of the equation or whether you're a man and you fall on the hyper-feminine side of the equation doesn't really matter you're still a man um again same thing with a woman you know i i I know i know lots of pretty badass women um that that do a lot of masculine things i mean as i said colleen was a climber uh, if you watched her climb, her her back muscles were were ridiculous. I mean, she was she was a beautiful woman, but uh, she definitely had a masculine back because she was she was a strong woman. Um, so, who cares sort of where you you fit on that scale? And let's just talk about what does it mean to be a human. 
as opposed to what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And again, I, I get that, that we need to talk about that, but I just, I wonder if that's maybe, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Maybe that's the wrong question. What does it mean to be a human being? Human up. Human up. Yes. And, and really that's what I, I'm hoping we can get at is that what it, I want people individually to think, okay, what does it mean? What kind of human do I want to be? Yes. What do I want to stand for? And then what am I doing on a daily basis? If someone watched with the sound off yes, and they'd say, this is what this person stands for. Let's, let's finish off with, with day one. We talked an awful lot. We could talk a lot more. Let's go back to day one for, yep. for you, which means that you get to restart building the person, the human you want to be, knowing the things you know now. Yes. What's the question you make yourself ask yourself every day? It's interesting because uh, I, I may I may change this answer now. I'll, I'll give you the one that I I'd sort of prepared, but our, our conversation has has got me thinking, and I'll definitely go back and and rethink this one. Um, but for me, it would be what have you done for someone today that can do nothing for you in return? So what have what have you given fully today? Really? Yes. So what have you done for someone today that can do nothing for you in return? That to me is the key, you know, whether it's, you know, can, I, I, can do nothing or, or you don't care if they do anything. No, it, no, it, I think it has to be, can't, they can't, there is no possibility of reward for, for me. Um, because I think that forces some of the values that I want to embody. If, if I'm giving and generosity is certainly one of the values that, that I would like to embody, um, but if I give something to somebody, even if it's with the best of intentions and there's a possibility of return, how do I really know why I did that? I mean, subconsciously, did I do it? You know, did I buy Drew a coffee because Drew's a speaker and I, w- I want to do speaking stuff and maybe one day down the line he can help me out? So th- this is why I, I like to do the, the pay it forward things. Um, you know, buying coffee at the lineup at Tim Hortons. You know, I have done that every day that I've been into into Timmy's for the last, it's almost three years now. Hold on. Every day you've been to Tim's, you've bought a coffee for someone else. For the guy behind me. Yeah, this is, well, this is why the, the ladies at the Tim's know me because uh, when, I, when I pull up, they, they automatically charge me for the, for the guy behind me. Every day. Every day I go, I've, I, I haven't been as often because we've got a French press at the office. And but. so now I see what you're saying. So you mean... And you get out before they know it's you. So yes. that person can't possibly. It's not even like you buy a drink for someone across the room and you know you're going to get this, the, the feeling of the, the hat tip or the, yes. I will let you know. That, I think, is the definition of some beautiful shit. Yes. And you're making it happen. Absolutely. And, and I really want to encourage all of our listeners to, to make their own version of beautiful shit happen. You talked about, you know, what is your, your skill? A woman came up to me after a speech recently and she said, here's a question someone once gave me. What is your magic? And, and I think the, the whole concept behind a lot of the work that I try to do is to let people know, like, I think we think of magic as some giant castle. You know, it's got to be huge and epic and Hogwartsian, new word, trademark. But honestly, moments like that create, like put magic out there and we've all got it. And, and even if I take nothing else away, like the power of forgiveness, but also the importance of to strip words away from the way we behave. Yes. And to say, are our actions lining up? And when you to talk about, I love you, but that's just one example of this we say, but do we do? And, and I think that's something that's going to stick with me. You know, it's really going to, it's still in my head clearly, yes. 
my friend, we could keep talking. I'm probably going to have to break this into two pieces, uh, but I've had an absolute blast. Thank you, one, for for being such an incredible guy, uh, because I'm sure some of the ripples you put out into the world have indirectly gotten to me, not let alone the ones that have hit me directly. Right. But also, uh, thanks for being so so open and honest, and, and I know it's what you talk about, but to talk about stuff like this, like this is badass. Yeah. And, and I, I know some some real people who consider themselves awfully tough who shy big time away from anything that makes them look like they aren't a badass yes and 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 being willing to embrace the stuff that you you're afraid will make you look not like a badass is the ultimate badass move maybe i don't know yeah i think so i think maybe i should probably do that with words better but it's been a kind of a long day for both of us but man uh from the bottom of my heart i'm a lucky i'm a lucky guy to have uh, to have crossed paths with you and i'm so glad that i could share some of your ideas out with the the listeners yeah me too and back at you awesome. back at you that brings us to the end of yet another edition of the day one leadership podcast my profound thanks to mike cameron for being such an extraordinary guest this week and we will once again be back with another episode next week with the World Cup of Hockey on the horizon. I'm thrilled that our guest is going to be father of Norris Trophy winning defenseman P.K. Subban. It's Carl Subban. He's going to talk about leadership in the context of fatherhood, what it's like to raise three professional hockey players and two teachers as well. And that comes close to home for him because for over 30 years, he was an educator in the Jane and Finch area of Toronto, a principal, in fact, one of Toronto's toughest, actually Canada's toughest neighborhoods. Here's a little bit of insight on the types of stories you're going to hear from Carl next week. You know, and so you place your order and then you go to the pickup window and before they give you what you ordered, you must pay the price. price. There's a price that must be paid for what you want in life. He brings such extraordinary energy and passion. It's a great conversation. I hope you join us next week on the Day One Leadership Podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. I'm glad that you're here with us every week. I'm Drew Dudley. This is Day One. Every day is Day One. I'll see you next week. Mm